This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and with the help of comrades Palace Shaw, Roxana Espos, Light Ali, and Bernadine Dorn, we're broadcasting in the spirit and the memory of Malik Ali. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're broadcasting today from the western wilderness, the unceded lands stewarded for millennia by the Hoopa, the Karuk, and the Yurok peoples. We who stand on freedom's side won't forget the long history of stolen land and resources, genocide and subjugation, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. We're transmitting, as always, on the Freedom Frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet. Our first traditional feature is the quiet contemplation of a poem, our moment of Zen. We'll switch it up slightly today, and once again, it won't be exactly quiet. This is our friend and comrade, Taina Asili, and a piece she wrote for the Portal Project called Abolition.
Our second regular feature is a free write, so pause the podcast for just a moment and write straight from the heart in response to this prompt. If you think of abolition politics as more than dismantling or destroying, if you can imagine abolition as world-building, what is it you want to build, or what are you building right now that points toward the world you hope one day to inhabit? Okay, start writing, and we'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Welcome back. We're heading once more over to the dazzling Pilsen Community Books to talk with Clément Petitjean about organizing and, for us, organizing to change the world. We had some difficulty with the audio, but luckily Roxana backed us up with her phone and the conversation came through. I promise it's worth your time, so have a listen. Hello, um, and welcome to Pilsen Community Books, um, Chicago's only worker-owned and operated radical bookspace. Um, my name is Catherine Solheim. I'm one of the worker owners here at the shop. Um, and tonight we are thrilled to welcome Clément Petitjean, um, the author of Occupation Organizer, here um, to discuss um, that book with Bill Ayers. Um, Clément is an associate professor of American Studies at the Université Panthéon-Sorbonne in Paris. Um, he holds a PhD in sociology. His writing has appeared in academic journals and popular outlets like Jacobin, Contretemps, and Le Monde Diplomatique. Um, 
man who needs no introduction, Bill Ayers, um, is the author of the acclaimed and controversial, controversial memoir, Fugitive Days, its follow-up public enemy, and many books on education. Um, he is the founder of the Small Schools Workshop and was, until his retirement, distinguished professor of education and senior university scholar at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Um, we have books available for purchase up at the front at the end of the events if you'd like to grab one. Um, and thank you both so much for being here with us this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to just say a couple of things. Um, first, thank you, Catherine, and thank you, Pilsen Community Books. Independent bookstores are invaluable. They are a precious space. And as the public space is disappearing, as the public is being eclipsed, we can't take for granted this bookstore or any independent bookstore. So many things have gone where we can come together and think and act and speak freely um, without masks, although I meant that metaphorically, with masks. Um, and, and, and this is one of those precious spaces. So I want to encourage you to buy a book. I can enthusiastically urge you to buy Occupation Organizer. But if you aren't going to buy that book, buy Moby Dick, and Clément will sign it for you, maybe. <laughs> um, the point being that we have to support this institution, and we'll only know how valuable it was if it disappears. Don't let it disappear. Saturday is Independent Bookstore Day. I think it's a national day. But in Chicago, the independent bookstores, and we have some of the finest independent bookstores in the world here, um, 7th Street Seminary Co-op, Women and Children First, and on and on. So if you have time Saturday between 11 and 3 or 11 and closing, um, try to do a bit of a bookstore crawl and go to the bookstores and show your flag and show your support. So that's my that's my advertisement for this space. Um, but let's move on and, and, and talk about the book we're here to talk about tonight. Clément Petitjean and I have just been talking um, for a bit to get ready to, to start. How are you doing? Um, and we are, we are um, going to talk for just a short time. He will begin by talking for seven or ten minutes about the book, I have several questions I want to ask him, but I'll try not to hog the mic. I want you to ask questions also. So as he speaks and talks about this work, formulate in your minds questions you'd like to ask, uh, statements you'd like to make. Um, and this is being recorded for my podcast, Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. And so um, I'm going to repeat your questions into the microphone. Uh, uh, we We try to we try to have guests on, on the podcast who have thought deeply about the problem of freedom and the complexity of freedom and have kind of made a contribution to the freedom struggle. So Clément is right in that tradition. So please join me in welcoming Clément Petitjean, organizer, occupation organizer. <laughs> Sir. Um, so <clears throat> I want to start by thanking Bill for reaching out and for uh, putting this together. Uh, and uh, Pilsen Community Books for hosting this. I, uh, I'm really, really uh, honored and grateful to, to be here. First time in the U.S. since like 2019. My first time in Chicago since 2018. About this book that comes out of my PhD. There's one reason why I'm disappointed I'm in Chicago. There has been this movement that started uh, in mid-January to oppose uh, pension reform that has reached 
pretty like historic um, numbers, uh, this level of anger against uh, Macron and his government and neoliberal politics in general is just an all-time high. And for the past months, I've been very active in this movement, and I'm kind of sad, to be honest, that I will be missing out on, on this. Um, even though you're in Chicago, the greatest city in the Even though I'm right. in Chicago, where right. May Day uh, emerged and was created. So, you know, it's not, I, I couldn't say that uh, tongue-in-cheek. But um, also, as a sort of introduction to the fact that um, I'm French, uh, and I tried, I sort of came to this object with uh, sort of French background to what organizing was. And I started being really puzzled by that word, community organizing, which to me made no sense. Uh, I did not understand what it meant. I did not understand what it referred to. And so that's sort of what I started, what I tried to under, to, to make sense of. Like, what is this? Uh, what, what? Who are community organizers? Uh, how has their uh, job evolved, and I sort of got to this, um, to sort of write the book as a uh, an attempt to find an answer to that. And the answer is, it is an occupation, but it is one that is fundamentally ambivalent, and that ambivalence comes out of the history. And the history, I sort of break it down in the book into two uh, different traditions. The first one uh, because I did want to bring some like French elements to the to the to the writing is what I call uh, creme brulees, and the reason why I call but this I, a creme brulee yeah. is that you have the sort of crisp layer of power uh, rhetoric and no nonsense, hard boiled. Uh, we get uh, things done, but that is on top of something that is very like sweet and mellow that you know boils down to class harmony pluralism, representative democracy. So it's kind of a weird mix, right? Um, another way of looking at it would be to say it's sort of militant liberalism. But that tradition sort of was uh, was created in the 1940s and, and, and it went on to, to, to develop uh, over the years. And the other tradition I uh, call spade work, uh, and I use the, a, a word that civil rights activist and organizer Ella Baker used to describe what she did. And it's kind of a, it's a different way of looking at uh, what collective action means and how you sort of, um, how you spur collective action by uh, oppressed people, by oppressed groups, which do not necessarily have um, the sort of impetus to, to you know, get uh, get um, organized and speak for themselves and, and defend their own voices. So you have those sort of two traditions that eventually came together in the late 1970s and 80s, and that's the moment, I argue, in the book when the profession itself uh, emerged. So the way of looking at it is to say that it was not created by Lewinsky, it was not created by Baker or by the Civil Rights Movement, but um, sort of defining and uh, stabilizing the organizer's role as a profession was a response to what do you do when a movement recedes? Uh, what do you do when you're in 74, 75, and people like Bill, you know, have been involved in years and years and years of, um, of protest, of radical politics, and what do you do, right? Uh, and one of the answers that was found collectively is we're going to sort of invest into this 
form of collective organization, which is an occupation or a profession. You could sort of the two are are, are synonyms, and and that uh, the two traditions coming together at that particular moment in history has kept uh, sort of shaping the work uh, today. So everyone, I would argue, who does organizing work in a paid position, uh, the work incorporates that political creme brulee and the spade work at, at the same time. And you have different balances depending on uh, the organization you work for, the, that organization's position within a sort of larger local politics, but also uh, an organizer's own background, uh, sort of in terms of like class, race, gender, sexuality, but also their own personal history will sort of push them towards the spade work or the uh, creme brulee slash management consulting aspect of, of the work. So it's 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 very ambivalent, is what I'm trying to um, to say. And the other important thing I want to point out, uh, and I will kind of conclude on this, is that I'm trying to say in the book that. There is this equation out there that professionalization means depoliticization. And I think it's partly right, and but also partly very wrong. If you look at the level of individuals, the people who do the work, you can make the argument, uh, at least that's what I sort of saw in my, uh, in my research, that working as an organizer not only does not depoliticize people, but it politicizes them. Uh, a lot of... Social workers, for instance, came to the work because they were dissatisfied with, you know, sort of putting band-aids on on stuff that was much more structural. And they came to, to organizing work as something they hoped would give more meaning to what they did. Uh, but you also have a lot of people who were involved in the Black Lives Matter movement uh, in the mid-2010s, for instance. You can think of Alicia Garza, Patricia Collars, who did work as organizers before, right? And who sort of whose involvement in movement politics does not correspond with a sort of organizing orthodoxy where you have movement activism on the one hand that is sort of idealist and effective done by amateurs and effective pragmatic organizing that is done by professionals. And if you look at people's trajectories in the long term, you see that this professional work is depoliticized equation does not hold uh, over, um, over time. But it is uh, a contradiction. And one of the things, I think you know this, you've studied in the United States long enough, it's probably true in France too. Americans hate contradictions because they want to resolve them immediately. They want to know which is the right side. But this is a contradiction, this contradiction between the idea of spade work, which you point out is also radical pedagogy and kind of professionalization, um, kind of a radical entrepreneur uh, like like Saul Alinsky, who kind of in some schools is is portrayed as the father of community organizing. But maybe you would talk a bit more about that contradiction and bring into it the question of foundations and how much foundations, you know, we, we had a conference here a decade ago called uh, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. And um, it was kind of a catchy title. But talk about that contradiction and bring foundations in into the floor. Okay, so before I do that, um, I do want to really emphasize what you just said in terms of radical pedagogy. So if you go back to that creme brulee spade work um, continuum, uh, spade work 
has its roots in radical pedagogy and the idea that politics is about teaching and it's about uh, teachers learning from students and sort of roles not being super rigid. The other, uh, so that's like radical spate work. That's Baker. That's the the work that was done uh, by people in, in Students for a Democratic Society. Like, it's Paulo uh, Freire. Like yes. It, it's the Freedom Schools of SNCC. And the other part, the um, crime brulee part, comes out of social work. If you look at Alinsky's training, he was really trained in a particular type of social work, and it comes out of like it's very akin to, to consulting work. So you have those pretty different way of looking at like the sort of tasks that someone does uh, for a living. And in the, the, the contradictions are uh, when it comes to foundations. Uh, foundations play a fundamental role in shaping what community organizing uh, is. The sort of most obvious one is in terms of the funding. Uh, the moment that community organizing institutionalized and really professionalized, so in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, is also the moment when you have something like a philanthropic field that takes shape, where you have an, a sort of uptick in the amount of money that um, the rich can redistribute, and in the process, you know, uh, get tax breaks and, uh, and you know, uh, and the like. And so foundation money became the, like, sort of provided the resources for the profession to keep existing. Uh, if you assume that you need professional organizers for a social change organization to, to exist, uh, then you need resources. If you work with low-income communities, there, you know, there's like a dearth of resources there. So you turn to uh, foundations to do that. And, and that's an important le level of, you know, um, subordination in terms of like financial resources. But the other thing that I point out in the book as well is that the subordination to philanthropy goes beyond just that sort of material uh, aspect because philanthropy started in the 80s and 90s kind of shaping what it meant, what it meant by community organizing. Uh, they are the ones who really started using the label to say, okay, so this grant is community organizing and this is something else. This is service, this is advocacy, this is policy work. So in using, in, in grant making, you do also help to shape the work and to decide whether it fits within the category uh, or not. And And of course, foundations are, contradictory places as well, right? So you have large foundations like Ford, like MacArthur, but also much smaller ones like Crossroads uh, or Woods or Webolt that have like less money that do play a sort of more direct role in, you know, uh, focus in sort of supporting movement work. But you still have that contradiction that, that plays out and that organizers are very aware of, right? Okay. Uh, they know that they have to navigate um, like writing grants and, you know, sort of making nice with funders and then in the day-to-day -day work having to, you know, find other ways to potentially spend the money because when you had a grant like a year before for social, for like criminal justice work and then right now you're working on housing, you kind of have to sort of take decisions that may not necessarily reflect uh, the, the, grant, uh, the grant making. So it is subordination, but there is that sort of 
room for maneuver at a, at a practical and, 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 a, and a sort of... Or there are contradictions within it. There are contradictions on all sides. Speak a little bit about professional versus amateur. How do you think about that? So that is, again, something I think I uh, caught on because of the fact of being French. Uh, or at least the, the fact of not, not being, um, not having been socialized to the language of U.S. politics. There is this one day I was uh, at a labor notes conference. Uh, so this was like 2016. Uh, and then people who had participated to the diet hunger strike of 2015 uh, came on stage and received an award. And one of them started uh, uh, his um, like thank you speech by saying we are organizers, we're not activists. And to me, that was like, what, what, huh? Uh, I don't, I don't understand what the difference is. And it was a real difference to him. It was, a, and it is a real difference to the people I interviewed. And it was hard for me to understand because in French you kind of have one word to describe mm -hmm. that, or at least I would just use one word. And to me, the two were synonyms. Uh, and the, the, the French would be militant or, or uh, militante. And I realized that sort of that, well, I realized. I argue in the book that to understand this difference, you have to see it in terms of organizers claim they are professionals, that they know what they do and they know why they do it. And activists are uh, considered as amateurs, idealists, uh, ineffective in what they do because they don't have the theory and the skills to build change the way it should be built, uh, according to, to the organizers. Yeah, I think I think when I think of amateur, I also think about Edward Said's marvelous pamphlet, little book, uh, Representations of the Intellectual. And he argues for people like teachers, we should reject the idea that we're professionals and we should embrace the idea that we're amateurs driven by passion, commitment, not some hierarchy of knowledge that ordinary people don't have access to. I thought that was an interesting distinction, too. I, I did not know that piece, so I'll, I'll check it out it's after. It's uh, worth, worth looking yeah. at. I, I give it to my graduate students because I think it's a little handbook for leading an intellectual life that's filled with passion and commitment rather than um, finding a way to distance yourself from the riffraff, you know. Um, let's talk more about contradictions. Um, Another contradiction um, that you explore is the contradiction of race. And nothing we talk about in America can escape um, the, the original fundamental reality of white supremacy and racism. And with Alinsky, you have a kind of a, I don't know, a case study in the, the difficulty and the ultimate flaw of kind of uh, professional organizing if it doesn't take into account racism and the history of white supremacy. So it's what is interesting about the history of kind of Alinsky's career is that very early on, so he started working in the back of the yards neighborhood in the late 1930s, uh, trying to, to, to put together a coalition of ethnic white working class uh, folks. But at, the, but at the time, there were like black workers uh, in the stockyards, and the argument could have been made, and it was made by the CIO uh, and by uh, packing work, uh, packing house workers unions, that you had to organize kind of 
across the um, the color line, right? You had to create multiracial coalitions. But because Alinsky's idea was that you had those sort of self-contained community units, uh, the goal was to bring them together under a sort of common denominator, and then like you would sort of create representation. So throughout like the 40s and 50s, Alinsky said, you know, like, uh, I can't, like, I'm not interested in organizing African-Americans because like they don't have the sort of minimum resources that is needed for that type of um, local uh, citizen representation to emerge. And then he started getting interested in organizing people in Woodlawn uh, which uh, whose demographics were rapidly changing at the time. You had an increase in African-American uh, households. But the way he addressed it was, uh, so he, I think I talk about that in the book, uh, he hired a black organizer named uh, Lance Squires, and he said, I'm only hiring you because I think it's the smart thing to do because you can build the organization that I want to build. But aside from that, not necessarily challenging uh, race and racism heads on. And then as the years uh, sort of uh, went by in the 1960s, Linsky would sort of pay lip service to, to the Black Power Movement. And later on, uh, like 68 or 69, say, I'm going to create a, um, a training institute, but it's going to be for white organizers only. Uh, and then the sort of next step in that was... Um, Power is located in the middle class, in the dissatisfied middle class. Uh, that's where there is a lot of uh, resentment and anxiety, and that's where we can really tap into, um, that's where we can build uh, new citizen power. So really not being interested in any sort of material understanding of class dynamics and and how race shaped um, all, of, uh, all of that. So that was challenged later on um, by, you know, people coming out of the civil rights movement, the black power movement, uh, of the feminist movement as well, who would say, well, what about the sort of built-in racism and sexism that Alinsky um, sort of cooked into the organizer um, positions, but you still had that um, like pretty sort of central tension um, being at play. The Alinsky people uh, took a lot of pride in the back of the yards movement and organizing across ethnic boundaries. But when it came to race, it broke down. And and Alinsky, and, and when you think about it, you do talk a bit about the Rainbow Coalition, which is a different idea about how you build solidarity between black and white and Latinx. Maybe you say a word about that. About the Rainbow Coalition? Yeah. So the Rainbow Coalition was, uh, for those of you who are not uh, familiar with that um, moment, is coming out of Chicago, of the Black uh, Panther Party and Fred uh, Hempton, who was uh, the um, Illinois chapter chairman uh, at the time, the idea that that they were going to build this uh, multiracial coalition with uh, poor whites from Appalachia, um, Puerto Ricans, Puerto Ricans yeah. and the Brown Berets, and the, and yeah. uh, which was what is last? There was a fourth one that uh, sort of uh, escapes me right now. But the idea was to have a sort of two pronged strategy. On the one hand, you start organizing 
um, within the, the socially constructed boundaries of race. So you start organizing, like self-organizing among African-Americans, self-organizing among um, Puerto Ricans and, and, uh, and whites. But then you create this space where you still attempt to march together and to fight a common enemy. And that is something that has remained in the imagination of like uh, radical um, politics ever since, right? The ability to create, like the hope that you can create something, both taking into account the very real weight and mechanisms of, um, of racist oppression, but also the possibility to go beyond that through coalition. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the legacy is that, part of the legacy of Alinsky is that if you say let the people decide and the people decide we want to keep black people out of the neighborhood, that's the people deciding. And it's kind of a, a liberal, you know, you know, it pretty much goes along with the status quo. I think the difference really is that, and, and the legacy is that we should organize um, across racial boundaries in uh, on on the factory floor in the in the workplace um in the in the neighborhoods but we have to take into account the special oppression of african americans historically culturally economically and right up to today and if you don't do that and you pretend it's a simple matter of we're all interested in higher wages then you will lose the fight and I think that legacy continues. Yeah, that legacy speaks also to the fact that <clears throat> in that creme brulee tradition, you're so focused on on the skilled dimension of the work that you evade politics. Right. That, you know, it's just about having the best strategy to win. And, like, what are the spread... Like, sort of having tools to, to assess participation to maximize participation but then the there's no end game right the end game is we want to win but what do you want to win and what do you want to win it for and then what's the sort of broader vision what's the broader worldview that you have um and that is totally absent from Alinsky um practices in Alinsky institutions the the because the underlying idea was american democracy is the best existing model the problem is it it is dysfunctional so we have to improve it uh, we have to improve it to fend off the communist threat and that's something that i i uh, really talk about a lot in the book how much Alinsky's work and career was shaped by anti-communism a very liberal uh, form of anti-communism but anti-communism nonetheless and it sort of exited any any sort of broader uh discussion of uh, you know uh, what's the common good? How do we achieve it? And it really sort of issued politics uh, in a pretty basic and broad sense. Yeah, I think the anti-communism and the kind of uh, white blind spot are the two fatal uh, flaws in, in the Alinsky model. And they continue up to today, too, as well as what you talk about so eloquently, the, the ways in which foundations, well-meaning as they may be, become the the be-all and end-all of organizing. Um, I think that's critical. You know, one of the things I admire about the book is you, you learned a lot in the course of this talking to people, going into the archives and so on. But you do end by saying, by asking the question we all ask, where do we go from here? And um, King had a wonderful book called Where Do We Go From Here? 
chaos or community. And I think he took it from Engels, who said, where do we go from here, socialism or barbarism? But you do address the question of where do we go from here, and you, you're very open uh, and somewhat agnostic about making any predictions or any, um, any principles. But maybe you'd speak a little bit about where do we go from here <laughs> in terms of organizing, in terms of fundamental social change. So that was, I want to say, the most difficult part uh, about writing the book was to, to sort of navigate that contradiction to sort of go back to that idea of, so it comes out uh, of a PhD in sociology and I did not see my role as a sociologist in making predictions and, you know, being normative in what should be. And I was just trying to make sense of what I, um, what I saw and what I uh, understood. And then Publishing the book for uh, with Haymarket also meant that you know it could not be, and I didn't didn't want it to be just an academic book. So my um, editor, very sort of um, you know in a comradely way, said you should try and go beyond the social scientist in you to you know kind of broaden uh, what you're trying to say, and uh, so that's probably why the agnosticism, I guess, me like not being super certain about what I think because I feel that what I studied is so ambivalent, is so contradictory that it's difficult to say, okay, so let's just break the contradiction and say it should go this way, it should go that way. Uh, but I'm, what I'm saying here is if we take seriously the uh, argument that organizing is a social relation of power between organizer and leader, um, there's kind of two ways that you can turn this into something that goes towards liberation. One way is you sort of work on the organizer side of the equation. So you try to democratize access to, to these positions to make sure that you have more um, people with no um, college education who can access the work, for instance. That's something that's really sort of um, constant throughout that history is how much organizer positions have been occupied by college graduates. Uh, even if you had in the 80s and 90s uh, a broadening of like gender uh, recruitment, uh, racial recruitment as well. Um, so that would be a possibility, right? To try and change who are uh, the organizers. And then the other part would be to, to make sure that leaders and community residents more generally don't need organizers to begin with, right? Uh, and in, in terms of that happening, it would mean a fundamental overhaul of, you know, the, the job market in the U.S., but also of access to education, right? Uh, so it would mean like having uh, um, tuition-free college. It would mean really like investing immense amounts of money into uh, public educa education from like kindergarten to, uh, to college. Uh, but in the in the meantime, since that is probably not uh, on the immediate horizon, what I would argue is uh, kind of use every opportunity to to one like get people tuned uh, sort of tuned in to to political work and engagement, and then um, the other thing would be have like developing spaces to to reflect about. The sort of post-COVID, post-2020 um, uprising, like how do you turn all of this into 
long-term commitment? Um, and how do you build on all of that politicization and anger uh, to sort of like steer it for the long haul? Uh, to, to borrow another phrase that I found a lot in the archives, and that idea of the long haul uh, is, is something that is both super important and super difficult to grapple That's with. That's the title of Miles Horton's autobiography, uh, The Long Haul, which he wrote with Herb Cole. But, you know, just, I have a question, but first a comment about what you just said. I mean, the professional organizer model is always looking for community leaders, nourishing the leaders. But the spade work model assumes that the organizer will learn from the community. It doesn't assume that there's some people who you will find it will hierarchically. And you think about the work of SNCC or the work of ERAP, um, the work of the Freedom Schools, or the work of prison abolition. We, people like Ronaldo Hudson coming out of death row in Illinois is a leader of the abolition movement in, in Illinois. Uh, people like um, Fannie Lou Hamer, Hazel Johnson, these were folks who weren't nourished as the leaders of the community, but they were teaching the organizers what the issues were. And I think it's important to kind of always remember that in the days of abolition in the 1850s, we know the names John Brown and, um, you know, and uh, Frederick Douglass and uh, the, those folks. But the energy for abolition came from the enslaved workers themselves. If they weren't self-liberating, if they weren't slowing down and striking, if they weren't creating rebellions, there would have been no crisis. The crisis came from them. That's true in the work we do today. You have to look and see beyond kind of the, the models and the neat looking, you know, uh, ways that we sometimes think of these things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, you're very right to point to the impasse of just thinking in terms of finding the so-called natural or organic leaders as the way to build a movement. Um, first, because from a social science perspective, talking about an organic or natural leader is a total nonsense. Uh, it's just like played nonsensical. Uh, but also because it escapes the fact that it sort of individualizes what uh, social relations are, right? It assumes that you have leaders, you have followers, and then it's pretty neat, exactly. it's pretty easy to break down. But that's not the way it works, right? Um, and and the problem is, is if we go back to that idea that organizing is a social relation, is that it's seen as kind of one-dimensional, right? So you have organizers who organize leaders, but then leaders lead community residents or their base, but it's not seen as working the other way around, right? So leaders do not lead organizers. Uh, and again, I think it uh, this that's where it, words are important, right? Yeah. The, the word organize implies that someone does the action of organizing to something else or to someone right, else. Right. Uh, or when you say we organize, uh, it's, and it's also something that I want to, to, to bring to the discussion is the fact that it's such a, a difficult word to understand because it doesn't really mean anything and because it conveys that sort of all the images of, um, of rationality and rationalization. Exactly. And then that's also the reason why it's so 
tied up with like management consulting, right? Because you can basically organize, you can organize a workplace to be more effective, right? And that can mean just laying off a bunch of workers. Yeah. And that would be organizing in a way. Uh, so here the, 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 the ambiguity of the word uh, is also pretty interesting, I think, to, to keep in mind. I think I, it's one of the things I admire about the book is that you stay open to ambiguity, contradiction, and not settling on anything. So the word organizer, you don't try to define it. You try to show instances of people self-defining it and so on. I think that's very valuable. But I want to raise one other thing. Um, all of us in this room are excited about the fact that we have a new mayor coming in. Um, uh, and, you know, I worry that people who are too tied up in electoral politics, um, I have to warn people that the potholes will not now fill themselves. <laughs> that, um, you know, that, that every, everybody's not going to be smiling every day. Um, we're still going to be all fucked up in a, in a lot of ways. But one of the things I, I thought was so... Uh, amusing in your book is you kind of begin with the idea that an organizer is somebody who, has, who works for a while and then becomes president. And, you know, when you talked about the Coco organizers saying we're not activists, you were talking about G2 Brown and Jeanette Taylor. Jeanette Taylor is now one, our city council person and one of the leaders of the Socialist Caucus. So um, I just think it's interesting to think about the relationship of the way people have framed organizing and the electoral arena and how you think about that now? So it's it's a very tough question. Uh, I wanna start by pointing out to the fact that Brandon Johnson worked as an organizer, as a union organizer for the Chicago Teachers Union for a couple of years, but that he worked as a teacher as well, so probably He's like, if you had to go back to the creme brulee uh, spade work um, continuum, uh, my guess is it would, because of his being a teacher, would definitely fall under the uh, the spade work uh, aspect. Although, but, as you point out, it's not a hard line. No, yeah. These things blend, but, but Brandon certainly comes out of the spade work tradition. And what is also interesting is that now in city council, you have one other person out of five who used to work, who has a background in organizing. Uh, five of the new 13 other people uh, are at least characterized in, in the local media as former community organizers. So that is a pretty important shift in terms of where uh, elected officials come from. They don't come from uh, machine politics, from being you know the chief of staff to the incumbent uh, other person or from being a, an, an, a like a congressional aide to whoever. So you have like a, a, a significant diversification of who sits on city council to, you know, represent uh, constituents and the people more, uh, more generally. And what is interesting in that is that, and what's sort of puzzling as well, is that the organizer's role was built on kind of putting electoral politics at a distance mm -hmm. and saying that, our expertise is that we don't speak for anyone else. Like we create the conditions for people to speak for themselves, but we don't uh, we don't substitute ourselves for like uh, community spokespeople. So, and here you have kind of the opposite, right? So running for office and saying, "Well, I'm actually going to endorse that role and to to play that role." Uh, I think it happened for a number of reasons, um, but I think it's it's a pretty um, 
uh, I, I'm not, I can't find the word right now, but I think it's, it's, it's like very exciting that this is happening and it's, it's, it's not, um, I don't think it's a coincidence that it's happened in Chicago, right? I agree. But I, you know, in 2008, I wrote a piece and argued that Obama cannot possibly save us. But if we do the right thing, we could possibly save his presidency. I would say the same thing today. Brandon Johnson cannot possibly save us and do for us what needs to be done. But actually, the idea of building people power, building a movement that demands housing for the unhoused, that demands um, health care for all, these things can be done. And if they're done, we could save his mayoralty. So it's, it always strikes me as funny that we go the other way, yeah. that, that in our country, politics has been so reduced to the electoral realm, which is so corrupted um, top to bottom, that we lose, lose track of the, the most important thing. And I never want to use the word, let's keep him accountable. That's not what I mean at all. I mean, let's build the movement. And, and that leads me to my last question that I want you all to, to chime in. My last question is, I've been doing a lot of prison abolition work and for a long time now, and I teach in, in Stateville Prison. And just as I said about abolition earlier, just as the abolitionists were, abolition as a movement was driven by the enslaved workers escaping and breaking their tools and so on, and the prison abolition movement is driven by people on the inside. But I really want your perspective on how do we look at a world where there's the narrative nationally is changing. Mass incarceration is in many ways um, delegitimized. Um, uh, there are many projects, campaigns, policies, legal, you know, legislative action and so on. How do you imagine that co coalesces as a movement as opposed to a group of separate um, Initiatives. Wow. I, <laughs> <laughs> <Good luck. clears throat> I want to say that it all depends on how you define a movement. Uh, and from my perspective, which is, as, I, uh, as I've said, having followed U.S. politics from afar for a couple of years because of COVID, uh, it really does feel like there is such a thing as a fully-fledged abolitionist movement. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't necessarily translate into sort of thousands of people protesting at the same time, but you have the infrastructure, you have the language, you have the all of the activity happening. Uh, and it's something that did not exist at that scale when I did the field work. So I did the field work from 2015 to 2018. Uh, and I, I remember talking about that a couple of days ago with um, someone named Alex Hahn, who now uh, runs uh, In These Times, the magazine, who uh, comes out of, who's trained as, as an organizer, work, work in labor for, uh, for and, and, then, um, and then politics for, uh, for you know, a really, uh, for a number of years. Uh, and we talked about that moment, like the mid 2010s, when the people did not, in the circles that I um, was looking at, people didn't talk about, uh, they talked about abolishing ICE, about abolishing prisons sometimes, but there was no such a thing as 
abolition as this sort of more all-encompassing concept. And I think that is one of the, what I understand is that it's one of the legacies of 2020, right? That now this is on the agenda and that this is, uh, it gives it gives perspective to a lot of folks. And that is something I think that, that we collectively need, right? That sort of positive thing we can hold on to and say, okay, we're like kind of working towards uh, towards that. And it has that, it does have this very positive aspect, which you don't find in anti-capitalism, for instance, right? Yeah. Um, it's much more, um, I don't know, easy to embrace also because it's pretty um, difficult to define, I guess, or different people put very different uh, meanings behind it. Sure. And and I, I, I do think that is, is one of the really exciting developments of, of the recent years. Yeah, I agree. And I think finding, getting the historical perspective, again, your book does such a great job of that around this notion of organizing. It doesn't come to define it, but you can see it in so many iterations and come to understand it. But I think that one of the great pieces written about the Johnson election was Barbara Ransby's piece in The Nation, because she didn't just talk about the victory being based on organizers organizing. She linked it back to the goodbye Anita Alvarez campaign and the stop the stop the uh, police academy campaign and on and on. So it's true these things get worked up. I agree with you. A movement, t- to some degree, really has come together. It's changed the narrative. It's pointed a direction. One of the things I think is missing, and I think this was very instrumental in in ending the war in Vietnam, was that. You had to see the face of the enemy and see that enemy as a human being who was not your enemy. And I think that we worked very hard to open up the minds of Americans, the fact that Vietnamese were just like us. I think the problem with prison abolition is that we still have these folks locked in this violent, cruel institution behind walls. It's hard to see them and anything you can do to make them visible, three-dimensional, I think is worth doing, very important. Anyway, let's open it up. You must have some thoughts, conversation, um, questions for um, Raymond. Anyone? Yes. Um, I'm curious, I, I, this is more just like a thought. I'm sorry, it's, I feel like a Q&A, you've got to ask like a question, but <laughs> just like a thought I had was like, I, well, maybe this is kind of a question. What does this look like with, Unions, like I'm a, I'm a Chicago teachers union member and like active in it, and, and it, it reminds me somewhat of like the concept of, and maybe I don't know, if, like when I think of like Alinsky, it's like the bread and butter unionism, like you're just asking for like the basic stuff like pay, healthcare, pension, versus like what we've been doing at least since 2019, but before then, like bargaining for the common good, like fighting for housing, like fighting for like for like uh, not letting like ice in our schools, like fighting for things that are like greater society and tied to like the fights that like our communities are going through. I don't know, where does where does your book or where does this, what we've been talking about fall into that with, with labor unions? Before you answer, could you say just another word about common good yeah, yeah, unionizing? Sure, yeah. Because I think it's one of the great things that the CTU has done and it's how they outflanked Rahm Emanuel and a lot of other things, and I have nothing but admiration for you. So maybe say a word to folks about yeah, common um, good unionism. So the, the idea basically is like, 
we're gonna it's that like our not only is like our working conditions affect our students like learning conditions but the idea is like okay like if we have 16,000 houseless students like that's gonna affect and come into the classroom and like it's gonna make their learning it's gonna make collective learning more challenging so it's like when we were bargaining in 2019 during our strike life it was like why are you guys asking for this like this this isn't related to like school it's like yeah it is because it affects our learning it like affects their overall like life like their well-being and their like overall lives so it's like I'm trying to think of like other kind. You put me on the spot a little bit. I mean, it's like that's a great example, though. You yeah. did a good job. That's okay, that's all good. Uh, wow, that's another uh, tough question. Um, huh? I want to. I want to say that it does bear resemblance, resemblance, but at the same time, it's pretty, uh, pretty different. I want to talk about the resemblance because I cannot think of a pretty difference. Uh, right now, where I think it, it um, I think the difference is in terms of how you the sort of boundaries of what you think is is thinkable. Uh, and in this, in the case of bread and butter unionism, it's like you already know what the issues are. I mean, you can have different issues, but you know that it's about you know like um, wages, safety conditions, and, and it's pretty like. Um, boxed in terms of the thinking. Whereas what you're describing is trying to to be more attuned to the world beyond the workplace um, and the connections between, okay, so the students are not just students. They're also, you know, they have parents, they have neighbors, they have, like, they live in different social spheres and the union can be kind of a, um, a starting point to try and link those different spheres um, together. And I think that in the way it sort of, the way it echoes with the um, creme brulee uh, spade work uh, continuum is that when you're thinking in terms of creme brulees, you're like, you kind of focus on, Alinsky's thing was, in order to build participation, we have to win. Because if you participate in something and you win, then people have kind of more incentives to stay. Uh, they're like sort of galvanized by the win and they want to uh, stay longer. But then when you start with the goal is to win, then it sort of reduces what you think is winnable, right? And for instance, if you translate that again to like union organizing and you talk about like creating unions at Starbucks or Amazon, if you start with, okay, what is winnable? Clearly, creating a union at Amazon, you're not going to say totally winnable, let's do this. Uh, because if you look at sort of the history behind it, all organizing efforts, all unionizing efforts have failed because, you know, Amazon is this giant um, tech company that has, you know, mastered all the uh, and union busting. Uh, so clearly, if you start with, if we win, like, if we win, we win, uh, then you you're kind of like shooting yourself uh, in the in the foot. So it's not necessarily a sort of term to term comparison, but I think that's where you would get um, echoes. Yeah, I got that now. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, uh, thank you all for your presentation and the um, conversation. So I have kind of a two part question, but it's related to what you said, Bill the revolution will not be funded, right? 
that is spot on. Mm -hmm. So the first part, looking at that question, is what happened to uh, Sister Garza with Black Lives Matter now getting support from the Open Society Foundation? And it seems like the thrust of that movement where 26 million people in this country and around the world were out for the summer of 2020, right, against in the midst of the pandemic, right? So where is that going? How does that reorganize itself if that's what she wants to do? Mm. The second, and you can tell me from a Fritz point of view, yeah. uh, the second part is yes, uh, the mayor-elect will not save us, right? However, um, we now see because of his new chief of staff, it's like a pivot to, to have institutional continuity with uh, the well-off, the well-connected, and what else did Hakeem Jeffries say today? Um, or you just want to say oligarchs, yeah. or whatever you want to call them, um, that now the unexpected happened. He won. They weren't counting on him to win. They had figured that uh, our Greek friend was going to win. <laughs> but so now they're pivoting to restructure how he's going to govern. So how will his movement continue with that since now the energy is gone? Right. So. Another really tough. Uh, <laughs> wow, these are Chicagoans, man. Can't, can't get away. You know? No, yeah. Um, so maybe I'll start with the second part of your question. Uh, I think what is interesting, from what I understand in, in the election, is that, uh, and uh, and to to to, duff, to sort of go back to Ramsby's piece in the Nation, is that. Johnson's election comes out of, like, Johnson's election is, is unthinkable without the CTU's 2012 strike. And that, that strike had no equivalent in the rest of the country in terms of it fundamentally changing local politics and creating a coalition that the bargaining for the common good coalition that you're mentioning, right? So, like, labor unions, community groups, um, independent political organizations. So you really have this... Um, sort of nexus of groups and people around it that have made the, the election possible. Uh, and so, and in a way, uh, the hope is that these folks will know that, you know, Johnson being elected is not the end of, uh, of, of the story, right? It's just the beginning. And now, now kind of the hard part, like um, act two is going to start. Uh, and here I'm kind of using the language from, uh, the French movement, where it's been pretty common to talk about protest movements in terms of acts. So, like, Act 1 was basically the three months of strikes and mobilizations, and then the law, the pension reform law, was passed. And then people said, well, whatever, this was Act 1, Act 1 is over, Act 2 is, you know, we're going to go after all the ministers and the president, wherever he is, we're going to make sure that they cannot speak. So thinking of it in terms of it's broader than just 
this one moment and you know like the struggle continues uh to use that sort of trite uh, phrase but you know it's trite but it's also super true um so we'll see right where the institutional like continuity one two three yeah it's good it's great 1.0 2.0 yeah yeah, yeah. That, that's a good frame yeah it is so you know yeah uh and in terms of of um where the movement for black lives uh, is at if i understand correctly because garza uh i i don't know what she has done uh these couple of these past couple of years uh, in part because as i said it was you know in france so it was difficult to follow everything that had been happening but um i think that question is 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 so difficult to answer right how what do you do after you have millions of people going in the you know like taking to the streets sometimes for the first time in their lives uh in you know like small towns where you don't have the institutional apparatus that could right. sort of channel that anger and channel that those commitments to to retain them uh to to sort of use a pretty useful word from like uh the sociology of mobilizations like how do you how do commitments get started under what conditions, but also how do they get retained by organizations? And that yeah. is something that uh, is really difficult to, to do, right? Because it's not just about being, being voluntaristic. It's not just about trying to, you know, to reach people. And some, sometimes you just have, you can be super willing and, and you know, like very um, intentional, But if the context, the material conditions are just not there, you know, you can sort of overextend yourself as much as you want. That's not going to, to move. And then in certain certain conditions, like like the current protests in France, for instance, no one would have expected that this would have lasted for so long. No one would have. If you had told me a month ago, okay, so what is happening right now is every day throughout the country, you have people showing up with saucepans to greet you know, secretaries of state, ministers. Emmanuel Macron has, to, when he goes on a, like, tour, he has to take his own power generator because um, electrical workers shut the power down when he speaks somewhere, right? That was unthinkable two weeks, three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, uh, you know, the uh, Constitution, um, Constitutional Council said the law will be passed, and that's basically it. People can go home, and people were like, "Well, not really. We're not going mm -hmm. to do that." Uh, so that that gives a lot of hope. Yeah. You know, those sort of moments when what you when thought was again? what when did that happen? So that was so the law was passed uh, April seven, uh, April fourteenth, April seventeenth. Macron uh, made this announcement on, on TV saying, okay, the law is over. Let's focus on work, order, and progress. That was kind of the three things that uh, he wants. And he said, I have 100 days to restore peace, to, to like work on appeasement. So you have hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people who said, okay, all right, let's create peace. Let's create appeasement. And, and that, you know, is it, just a lot of spontaneity but also years of anger that has accumulated and built up and then people who have managed to 
uh, to politicize that anger. Uh, and I think that, so it's not just a question of this is purely spontaneous or this is purely organized. It's a mix of the two. And, and in the current moment, you have a lot of spontaneous action that people uh, respond to because, um, because it makes sense to them. And because there's this element of joy that honestly I hadn't felt in a movement in like a lot of time. That the fact that you can experience joy in collective action is something right, that right. that critical. is really really critical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are so many important lessons. I mean, one thing to remember always is that the day before every revolution, every commentator says it's impossible. And the day after, every commentator said that was inevitable. Rosa Parks, uh, the Civil War, John Brown, whatever. But uh, the other thing is that I think that with electoral politics and with things like the spontaneous uprisings in the summer of 2020, we have to remember that part of our work is to create on-ramps so that people who get touched by spontaneous action have a way in. And we're not great at that, and we have to get much, much better at it. You know, I think that that's one of our takeaways from the last five years. I actually do have a question about that. One thing that stood out to me the most was actually at the beginning of the conversation when you mentioned that in France, there's one word. Here we have two words yeah. to describe the same thing, right? And I think throughout the conversation, there's been an underlying uh, sense of, you know, a stratification almost within uh, collectivist movements of those, uh, I guess, quote-unquote classes. So my question to you would be, how have you seen that? Has that affected or hindered or even benefited potentially either American collectivist movements or French collectivist movements? And if so, how has that come about? So in terms of there being one word in French and, and then that's... Right, which would, I think, I'd, I'd extrapolate that and think that potentially the French collectivist movement might be a little bit more egalitarian or horizontalist, whereas the American might be a little bit more stratified. I could be completely wrong, it's a total assumption. Um, but that's, that's where the question comes from. So... Again, that's a really difficult. Uh, I'm glad you're all. Oh, you're asking those questions, but I, I, it would take like a lot of time to to like formulate a proper answer. I told to them to close up at twelve. <laughs> <laughs> but so so the first thing I want to start with is the way I framed it is kind of an oversimplification, uh, particularly because in in France, if you zoom in on on labor unionism, for instance, you have different words, right? You have like uh, syndiqué, which would be for union members, and then syndicaliste would be for a person who's more active. Um, but the difference is, I think, um, I don't want to say that the, 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 that the sort of organizing culture in France is more egalitarian. It's just, it just is like laden with power in different ways. Mm. Uh, so first, like there are staffers at you know unions uh, associations political parties but the work that they do is not necessarily organizing work in the sense of you know like building participation and then keep and sort of keeping people engaged if i had to sort of boil down organizing work uh, the way i define it in the, in the book uh, uh, I, I would say that um but what happens and that's something i've tried to do uh, at a very sort of local level at my university with my uh, colleagues to say, okay, let's think like organizers. So let's, uh, if we're trying to build a strike in our department, uh, which we try to do, um, 
maybe we should, you know, list all our colleagues and then decide who is a definite like no strike uh, person who's a fence sitter who's, and then I received a lot of pushback from my colleagues uh, because they were like, that's not a position we want to be in, right? We don't feel like authorized and legitimate to go and talk with you know folks we've known for like months or years and be sort of cynically intentional about recruiting them to something. Uh, and that I think has to do with the fact that. We're on pretty even ground, uh, at least professionally, right? Like we're, we're talking teacher to teacher and it's hard to sort of endorse that role of you should do this and you should, or uh, I think that you should do this and I think you should do that. Um, and the other thing is a lot of the assumption in, uh, in organizing practices in France is that people uh, sort of participate or commit to something on their own grounds and for their own reasons. And it's like none of your business to go and reach out to them in a way. I'm sort of oversimplifying here uh, again, but the but then it sort of rests on a model of, you know, like volunteer commitment, which is, I talk about that in the book, um, presupposes a lot of stuff. It presupposes that you have free time. Um, so... It's not that, and it also presupposes that volunteer commitment would be more real or more authentic than, you know, someone who gets paid. Uh, and it's not, it's not necessarily the case. And uh, what I tried to, uh, a finding that I did not expect uh, in the research is that the moment when you have a real diversification of who the organizers are is when it becomes a profession. When it becomes possible to actually make a living is when you have an increase in people of color and women. Uh, and that really complicates the question of, you know, uh, kind of um, staffers are part of a problem. What we need is sort of pure, right. real volunteer commitment. Right. Well, how do you make that happen uh, when, you know, you, you're working two or three jobs uh, you have like family constraints or, you know, you just don't have a car to sort of go um, that place or uh, or this place or that place. Uh, so I don't I don't know that I'm answering your uh, your question, like but it's what well, yeah. I like where you took it. Really interesting. All the questions are meant for chopping it up and being complicated and not solving it tonight. We do have to come to an end and we have to close the shop. But I want to say one last time that, um, first, that this valuable public space deserves your support. And I look at the wall and I see Jeff Haas's book on, on Fred Hampton and I see Sadia Hartman and Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde. And right here is a table, which they put up especially for Clément about <laughs> France in 68. So grab a book, uh, grab this book, Occupational Organizer, and join me in thanking Claymore for writing this book and for being here. Okay, folks, let's give thanks that we're alive and dancing the dialectic at this moment on the clock of the universe. 
the only moment we have. Let's look unblinkingly at the society as it is, and let's take responsibility to build projects that reimagine, repair, and rebuild this broken world. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to co-conspirators Roxana Espos, Light Eilee, and Palace Shaw, and to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger for the generative and provocative podcast, Ergo. That's A-I-R-G-O. And let me note here that we just drove the length of the country from John Brown's farm in the Adirondacks to the Northwest. And Ergo was our constant companion. There's so much there about movement building, making connections, building from the ground up, experimenting, the rhythm of activism. Check it out. You won't regret it. We were challenged and inspired, illuminated and educated each and every hour. All right, go forward, keep rising, and make a space in your life to do the necessary spade work in the day today. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time.